Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. Today, I'm joined by Scott Barrows. Scott Barrows is the CEO and co-founder of Blue Palette. With nearly 20 years of entrepreneurship underneath his belt, he's proven, he has a proven history of launching uh, landscape-disrupting platforms to the industrial trade industry. He's also the founder of Epic Inventory Management and Symbiotics, an online suite of applications designed for the ticket industry. Scott went on to found the ticket reselling platform Zero Hero, which was eventually acquired by Ticketmaster and is now also or is now employed by the NFL. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, David. Appreciate it. Something I love about talking to people about relatively niche industries is the fact that they all have a unique journey in terms of discovering an, an, like a specific pain point that most others would probably never even think about in their life. So would you like to talk about that journey and how you came to found your current company? Yeah, I think it's when you're uh, when you start as a participant and you're in that environment on a day to day basis and you're kind of looking to other people to create solutions for you and it's just not happening as fast as you need it. And, hmm. uh, you know, every once in a while, it's like, all right, well, let's see if we can try to build a solution ourselves. And so that's kind of what happened in the event ticketing industry. Um, and uh, I started with the Chicago Blackhawks back in the day. Uh, and then moved into the secondary ticket market. And uh, we had seen how it was working between, uh, say, the teams and promoters, the distributors or ticket brokers, and then the fans. And there was these new marketplaces that were coming out and people were being participants in it. Uh, and the fans were able to be a part of it, but the teams were kind of sitting back. And so um, we're like, wow, is there a way to create a new type of platform that would allow teams, venues, Taylor Swift's and all this to be able to all work in one decentralized marketplace together uh, in a safe way and responsible way as well with ticket resellers and also fans and mm -hmm. allow fans to sell the teams, teams to sell back and forth, uh, whatever made the most sense at that time. So that's where we kind of created this market network platform. That was our solution. And then... And then, yeah, once you try to figure something out, then you just try to see, all right, could this be applicable for another industry? And uh, that's that's what led us into uh, chemicals and other industrial verticals. So the jump from consumer tickets to entertainment-based shows to chemicals seems like quite the jump. Did you have yeah. like, intermediary steps between? Uh it actually just came from, uh, you know, I had two friends from business school that had been trading chemicals for about 20 years. And I was just always curious uh, and uh, would always ask some questions about what commerce and trade was like for them. They were brokers. So they would say, yeah, you know, we get a phone call, someone looking for isopropanol, and then we need to make five phone calls. And, uh, and then, you know, we take three days to get prices back and then we have to book freight and someone sends mm -hmm. a fax and someone sends a check. And then it's like, all right, well, how large is your industry? And they said five it's like four and a half trillion dollars. Like, <laughs> let's let's take a let's take a look at that and see if there's a way we could provide some value. So that's kind of how it started. And then um, we literally just um, flew down to an annual meeting uh, for the National Association of Chemical Distributors, and we we went and we printed out a flip book at FedEx Kinkos uh, with our last platform, but like reskinned it with chemicals on it, and just we just walked around the trade show. It was like, hey, would anybody sit down with us for five minutes and just look at what we built for another vertical and just tell us what could this provide any value for your industry? And that's hmm. just kind of started. Was it that one conversation you had with a peer or the, I guess those few peers that gave you the confidence to move forward to, I guess, do a, I guess, mini pivot on terms of design and go to a conference? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it was finally getting like a small success under the belt and, and seeing how that worked for the NFL. <laughs> and it was, it was like, okay, you know, we've actually been able to provide something that a very large entity 
is able to use and, and get value from. And then so that kind of just provides a little extra encouragement and courage uh, to be able to try something a little bit bigger, you know? And so, I mean, we were sitting there in our hotel room in board shorts, like looking at the agenda of all these CEOs and almost just like laughing. We're like, oh yeah, they're a $10 billion company. Let's email that CEO. Let's email that mm-hmm. president. You know, what do we have to lose? Um, we're just down in San Antonio. So if everything goes bad, we'll go hang out in the lazy river afterwards. So like, um, you know, so yeah, we would just uh, get a little confidence from successes in the past. And then, and when I, I think when you see that you're able to provide people value, then that just gives you confidence to want to go help other people as well. And if you're looking at a business opportunity is just making money, then people can smell that they can sense that. Right. Um, but when you, if you're able to feel like you're actually going to be able to provide value to people, and then you can give that feeling to them, then they'll, they'll sit and listen to you, you know, and there's like, and I think that was one of the biggest issues that, that people were running into with the chemical industry and, and the distributors were very open about that too. It's like, everyone sees this as this huge four and a half trillion dollar industry, this shiny little object that they can add to their portfolio of verticals. Hmm. And, uh, but no one's taking the time to actually respect what we do and, and how the intricacies of our industry, uh, how much um, regulation there is, how much risk hmm. there is. And until someone takes the time to do that, they're like, we're just going to remain on the sidelines. So, hmm. um, so yeah, that wasn't, I mean, we, we sponsored their uh, trade association for two years before we even had a product. So hmm. it's out there and we were flying around to like mineral wells, Texas and Tuttle, Oklahoma and all these, you know, corners of the United States uh, to, to talk to whoever we could and just be like, just tell us what you guys need us to build. Like, we're not going to try to shove you into something. Right. Uh, if we're building this from the ground up, it's just whatever you need. And so that's, that's been helpful through the process. Do you mind if I ask you how much those sponsorships were? I generally recognize they're not cheap. That's for sure. Uh, actually, it's not that bad. I can't tell. I can't say exactly what the sponsorship is. Okay, that's fine. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I think it's important to um, where because when I first met with the president of NACD, his name's Eric Beyer, great guy, and I, I met with him one time for one of our trips out to DC. And um, I told them about my intentions and that, that we wanted to kind of create our beachhead around his association because they have a three-year audit process and we wanted to build on a quality network and not have to try to create our own. And um, mm-hmm. was hoping that there would be mutual benefic- uh, benefits from both parties doing that. And he's like, you know, I'm open to it. There's been a lot of other people that have come to us as well, but he's like, if you want to be a part of this association, sponsor, do whatever, it's like, you can't fake it. Like people will smell that out. You can't just throw some money at this and then hope that your banner's up somewhere or your logo or whatever. It's like, you have to come to every single event. You have to make sure that you're involved with these members. You have to listen to them, you know, and it's like, you have to go through these steps or, or you might as well just not even write the check. And so Mm -hmm. he was very upfront about it. And so I was like, no, I'm like, I'm like, this is our, this is our conscious decision. We're building our beachhead around distributors. We're building our beachhead around the U S market. So, um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's a few thousand dollars, but I think it was the best thing because we mm-hmm. wanted to show that our, our business model is that we build around trade associations. Mm-hmm. So we think that trade associations are very important to the whole ecosystem of industrial commerce and making sure that, like I said, you have quality participants in there, that you have a support system to make sure that everybody's uh, respecting responsible distribution regulations and so forth. And so the more that the trade associations get larger and are more supported, then the better business participants you're going to have in these networks. And so it's a win-win for us. And, and also we just want to make sure that they're feeling supported as well by us. So 
Yeah. Was it difficult to learn all of the, I guess, the differences between the world of consumer tickets to a regulated industry of chemicals? I imagine there's a, there has to be a lot of laws around chemicals and it must be difficult for an outsider to pick up on all of that. Yes. Uh, I think at some point when you're going through these processes, you just have to be a little bit crazy. Or like, <laughs> uh, I, I, I have sad to admit that like, there's, there was a two weeks. So there's, there's things called safety data sheets and they're about eight to 10 pages long. And they, they go along with every single chemical product that's sold or transported. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very, they have all like the DEA and EPA and DHS regulations all on those. And so I spent two weeks and I literally just taped about 30 of them around my office and stayed there till 11 o'clock each night and just like just researched and researched and researched every single aspect of the 16 different sections of a, of a um, safety data sheet until we could figure out how to repopulate that and digitize that through our entire commerce. And until I, I understood that, then there was no way to continue to build a platform to successfully do it. So um, sometimes you just have to put, go through these really weird zany exercises that 99% of the world would just never want to do. But then you're just that weird person that's like, I actually find joy in trying to figure out this kind of puzzle, you know? Um, so yeah. And, um, and that was something the industry said too. They're just like, you know, there's EPA violations all the time. Amazon's got hit with a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's huge repercussions, not even just from a financial standpoint, but the distributors really take it seriously and they don't want their name getting tied to anything that happens in their community for a, a product that gets misused or purchased or, um, so, um, they're just like, you know, you got to get it right. So that was really a good thing about working with the trade association. And we'll do this for other verticals too, is that they make the introductions with DHS and DEA and DOT. And so we'd sit down with their agents and be like, okay, well, here's our commerce platform. What else do we need to build in here uh, that you guys would feel good as a regulatory body knowing that parasitic acid is getting transported across country, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, so those were some pretty interesting conversations to say the least, but I think DHS was the funniest one. They're just like, I can't believe that someone's actually calling us to get regulated. So I had to get three other people to get on the phone just to hear this. And I was like, oh, that's great. So um, yeah, no, it's been a really, really interesting process. But no, you're totally right. There's there's so many things to take into consideration. And I, and I hope that, I mean, there's going to be more and more B2B marketplaces and B2C marketplaces come out for these industrial verticals. And I just hope that, a, that the people that are building these systems take this stuff seriously. And then number two, the participants understand the risk that they're adhering to when they when they decide to post product on that. So kind of a two-way street there. So I definitely think that weirdness is totally underrated. I think it's those like weird quirks that give entrepreneurship their really, really strong edge in the world. Right. Um, but how do you replicate that, right? Because you have to have engineers, at least, at least in my mind, I imagine you have to have engineers understand these rules so they can properly digitize all of these um, legal requirements. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's funny when I'm, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go through a vetting process of people on our team, like our, our engineers are probably our most valuable assets. And, and it's having discussions with them and having an open dialogue and where it's like, we're going to have not uncomfortable conversations, but just weird ones. And I'm going to say terms that don't make any sense, but you kind of <laughs> figure out what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and uh, and so the people that, that are on our team kind of understand that. It's like, I know Scott's trying to sell me something. It may be smart. It may not be smart. Uh, but I just have to sit here and try to sift through it. And then and then at the end, try to piece it all together and be like, okay, that kind of makes sense. So um, I think it, 
I think that like an, an engineer uh, that's really valuable to a team is able to have that extra sense to them and, and uh, of understanding. And uh, uh, so I think that's super valuable to look for. It's like, it's not just like, well, here are the data fields we need and here's this and that. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's also with your product team too, the product people being able to understand what they need to put together in the scope so the engineers can hear it. But um, yeah, there, there just needs to be that, I think to really build a, a special piece of software you need to have people that are have just a little bit more competency besides their core functionality of being an engineer or product person. But and then also like our biggest thing for core values is curiosity. It's like you you don't want to just have someone that's in that seat that's like, okay, here's my task for the day. You have to have this underlying feeling of curiosity of like, okay, but how could we do that slightly better? Like what else is going on out there that we need to address? So I mean that's an important component as well. How do you how do you look for that in the interview process? Um, well, we uh, some of our team members had gone through this process before at the previous company called Traction or the EOS system for entrepreneurs and um, and managing uh, like your your quarterly goals, uh, your yearly goals, and so forth. And then another big part about it before you do it is your core values. And uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of businesses before that we've started. And I wish I would have gone through the same process. And, and I was almost like, there's so much stuff going on right now that we really have to spend three days figuring out what our core values are going to be. And, and one of our co-founders, Austin, was like, no, like, this is critical. Like, if and when we start scaling and we start bringing on more and more people, we have to set those core values first. And, and this is going to be what guides us through every hard decision we have. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the biggest things is every time we hire. And so we'll have four or five people within the company talk to whoever is is potentially in the candidate. And the, the biggest thing we ask is like, it's not where did they go to school? What were their GPAs? What's their history? It's like, do they match our core values? And um, and if they do, um, then then all of a sudden, then that's probably 80% of, of the decision that we, we make. Um, there's been people that I've just, uh, a recent person that we brought on from our team uh, or for our team, I was just talking about a partnership or a an integration with the company he was working with. And as we just started having a conversation, I was like, I know this sounds really odd and I've just been talking to you for 15 minutes, but everything you're saying fits with every single core value that we have here, you know? And so he's like, okay, where do we go from here? And so I was like, I want to keep talking. So now he, now he works with us. So uh, Matt and he's incredible. So, um, and it's, I think that helps too, having those core values set because when you're out there and you're just meeting people, you don't know when you're going to run into the right person, but it helps you identify that individual. And you're just like, oh, wow, you're, you're, you're curious in nature, you're entrepreneurial in nature, you're a hard worker, you're a hustler. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's all the stuff that we're looking for. So the other stuff we can help fill in. Are you ever concerned that the, the people who have those traits are at some point in their life going to realize that I want to build my own company and they want to, at some point, I guess, leave the corporate a corporate role, like a like a role within a previous business to do so. Yeah, and we support it. I, the um, our chief brand officer George, uh, he was running. He had a couple. He's worked with like Nike and Volkswagen and stuff on a lot of big projects. And then he started doing some of his own entrepreneurship projects as well, doing a great job. And then got hit with COVID, so there was kind of an opening that we could bring him in. And you know, we both had a very straightforward conversation, and he's just like, you know. I want to come and be a part of this and help build this. He's like, I have my own personal aspirations too. And, 
you know, I, I'll be assisting with brand. I want to learn more about fundraising and, and building a business. And I'm like, yeah, anything you want to learn, we'll teach you. Any meeting you want to be in, we'll get you in on that. You know, it's like, and, um, and so I'm like, if we're going to preach entrepreneurship and entrepreneurialism, then the last thing I can do is like, I want you to be entrepreneurial, but not for yourself, for me. <laughs> You're like, that's uh, not quite genuine, you know? So yeah, I mean, I see it as kind of like coaching trees or whatever, you know, it's like nothing would make me more proud than like five or 10 years from now to have 15 of the people that were on our original team all run their own companies. That'd be awesome. So, um, so yeah, we, we try to give everybody the ability to grow, the ability to learn and know that they're supported and not like, you know, we want to have paths for them if they want to grow with us. And then we also want them to know, like, if it's your time to move on, if you're trying to move on, we'll support you. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So when I first went to your website, I guess the first impression I, I, I guess I understood was the fact that you're trying to become something like a moderated eBay for chemicals. Is that a right? Is that a correct view of the, of the core offering or am I slightly off? Um, first off, to look at the website, it's communicating that. <laughs> uh, we're trying to be uh, sl slightly different. I mean, I, I think when you look at our offerings as far as our, the merger that we just did, uh, merged with the fintech company. So when people are like, well, what does that mean now for, for your product? The, the easiest way to describe it is that we're kind of eBay and PayPal in one, but for, but for chemicals right now. So um, that would be kind of be where the eBay comes from. As far as like the eBay business model, um, the eBay platform model, um, we, we look at that as more of a two-sided marketplace where you have buyers on one side, sellers on the other. B2B marketplaces are, are, are a big thing right now. Um, and it's tempting for us to kind of jump into that fray um, mm -hmm. because there's great valuations going on and it'd be probably even easier for us to raise money than trying to go with the, the, the kind of uh, slightly more forward business model that we're working off of. Um, but um, we, we study a lot of, um, there's a lot of people that have been coming out with some really good writings, Applico, the Applico guys that wrote Modern Monopolies, um, Alex and Nick, um, they've got a lot of good um, talks about, um, you know, platform models, positive network effects, negative network effects. Um, and then also James Courier, NFX. He's running a lot of great stuff about market networks. And then also, um, so we've been reading and, and just trying to study a lot about that. And um, and so when you look at these two-sided marketplaces, and this is, a, this is a, a big thing behind our business model, is that, so let's take Amazon. Just, uh, and so you've got buyers on one side, you got sellers on the other. So on these two sides, and then you've got the marketplace in the middle. So, um, so if you're a buyer um, and there's, sorry, if you're a seller and then more buyers come on, you get these positive network effects from the other side. So it's like, great. I would never probably known these buyers. You're bringing them into me. I get these new sales channels. As a seller, I love being part of this marketplace. But then there's also negative network effects that people are starting to see in the industries and the verticals that are taking effect that nobody's really, really brought to light. Uh, I think James Courier has done the best of it so far, where you look at, so on, on the seller side, you get some positive network effects as new sellers come on because as there's more inventory, more buyers are going to want to come on. Mm -hmm. But you're not able to have one-to-one -one connections with other sellers. So the majority of the network effects you're getting are actually negative because all you're doing is you're getting additional competitors coming on, selling the same products. And then your, your value as a distributor, manufacturer, supplier is being all of a sudden being commoditized. And then your price mm -hmm. is being commoditized. 
And so, so I may be this incredible distributor that has the best customer service. I've taken all my clients out on fishing trips and all this and that. So the guy's a jerk, but all he has to do is come in and be 10 cents less than me in the checkout and the customer is going to buy from him. And that's it. And then all of a sudden you have this, this, this effect that prices are tumbling down. And then, and then, and then at the very end, I, I think, and we'll start to see this maybe in a couple of years, or maybe we're starting to see it now is that the customers are the ones who are going to see the negative effect. They're like, I kind of miss customer service. I kind of miss having a personal relationship. I kind of, you know, now all I do is buy from Amazon and I'm just seeing cheaper and cheaper product and not seeing really any additional services. So, um, and then the last part for the, for the sellers in this two-sided marketplace is that, you know, these guys used to have all their own direct connections and their own customer bases, but as marketplaces become larger and larger and Amazon's becoming like the largest distributor in some of these verticals, all of a sudden, now you're reliant just on the centralized marketplace. So you only have one customer. It's Amazon. And now Amazon knows that. And they're like, okay, it was 5% selfie. Now it's 6%. Now it's 7%. Now it's 8%. And then our, our particular industry maybe only has a 10% gross margin. There's not a lot of room there. So so we're like, there needs to be a new business model. There needs to be a new platform model because this isn't sustainable for anybody. The only people that really win in the end is the guy that found his way to get stuck in the middle or put him, force himself in the middle and take a rake off of everything. So mm-hmm. the market network is what it allows um, the marketplace to happen. There's a marketplace component to it. So there are benefits as we were saying on, because you get new buyers, but on the seller side, the, the network component allows everyone to have one-to-one connections as well. So you can build out your own network you, and it's decentralized. So a distributor, a supplier and a paint coatings company are all considered the same. And no B to B or no step B to C, it can be whatever that point in time needs. Like when we saw with COVID, um, you know, all these situations where, um, you know, distributors needed to sell back up to suppliers or end users. We, we were helping out with COVID on this one project and we had dentists that had all these extra uh, nitrile gloves that were trying to sell it back up to distributors. So the distributors could get it to nonprofits. It's like, these traditional supply chains of, of manufacturer to distributor, distributor to consumer, B2B or B2C, they don't create resiliency in the supply chain. And so we're, we're really pushing this concept forward where, where it's like, okay, there's B2C and now B2B is popular, but we're going one step further where we're like, it needs to be decentralized. It needs to be, it needs to allow whatever the network needs to do at that moment in time to do it. And, and it. and it can't just be in one set direction or with just a couple set participants. So kind of more like if you, I don't know if you have like a Google mesh Wi-Fi or whatever, like if you set that up. It'll, I do. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So it allows it to connect, you know, whatever points are necessary at that exact moment in time. That's exactly how a decentralized network will, will work for industrial commerce. And so, um, yeah. So, so how much of the, I guess, theories of more traditional thoughts around marketplace-based businesses do you incorporate into your current business or or more so, or how do you choose one to uh, take an existing idea or to just um, trailblaze something new in the industry? I think it's just, it's, it's a balance for sure. Um, I know that's not the best answer, but we, uh, we, we constantly go back and forth on that where if you really want to be bold and you really want to try to create something new, you have to listen to the needs of everybody, but you're also not listening to exactly what they tell you to do. It's it, you kind of like, you're like, tell me all of your problems. Tell me everything that you're having issues with. 
And then we're going to go do a whole bunch of research and try to create something that you haven't even seen yet. And so, um, and sometimes that's scary and sometimes that's risky and, uh, and sometimes it doesn't pan out. Um, as I was mentioning before, it'd be a lot easier for us as we're going through these different fundraising rounds and stuff like that, just to be like, oh, we're a B2B marketplace as well. And it's like, oh, B2B marketplaces are great. And then so, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's like, oh, no, we're doing something a little bit different. You know, it's like, you know, we think this is going to be better long term for everybody. While we might not make quite as much money off the transaction, you know, here's the logic behind it. And here's the feedback from the industry. And they're like, oh, OK. You know, and you also have to educate the industry as well. It's like, you're like, oh, this is a new tool for me. It's like, and it's threatening. It's like, yeah, no. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. You, you just get to, you just have to decide as a, as a business leader or a founder or a founders group, like how aggressive and how next level do I want to be? And, uh, I'm not saying one way is better or the other, you know, just the, the further you go, the more risk there is, and then hopefully more reward. So when you think about long-term, what time frame are you thinking about? Because if you think about a time frame that's too long, you might start getting into these theoretical situations and um, maybe too far removed from reality. But if you think about a time frame that's too short, then you're over-optimizing for the short term and under-optimizing for a longer duration of time. Yeah. Like, what do you? What's a reasonable time frame that you think you should, for your business that you should optimize for? Uh, I mean, I think we're probably looking at eighteen months to really show okay. uh, critical mass and. You know, six months for proof of concept. You know, we just we just started opening the doors two weeks ago since the merger, and the technologies have been brought together. But I think anything in eighteen months, it'll be okay. You know, we've been into a couple of international markets, really showing that we can get mass attraction. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the question that everybody is, is coming up with. It's like, you know, at what point are you going to be able to prove yourself, and um, and hopefully sooner than later. <laughs> so, yeah. That is definitely the hope for everyone. Yeah. I noticed that you you mentioned the merger. Um, how do you know that the merger was something that was the right decision for your company versus, I guess, building in-house or going down a separate path? Time will tell, but um, it was funny. My So we, we merged with a fintech company, and um, we'd actually been brought together during COVID uh, by a potential acquirer, uh, a global hmm. commodities company. We, we had shifted our platform to only do COVID-related products and raw materials and offered it for free to try to help out with the COVID uh, pandemic. And um, and then we, had, we were just giving demos to all these people uh, that were trying to help out. And uh, a consultant had seen one of the demos, and then he had a global trading commodities trading company out of Germany that was looking to buy a platform like this. And then he also knew of this other fintech company um, that was doing student student debt initiative stuff. And they're like, man, if you put these two together, he's like, I think like you could potentially like completely solve or how how hard these these transactions are doing internationally because they have escrow capabilities and ACH capabilities and all that stuff. And so um so we almost got acquired. We had the letter of intent signed and everything, mm-hmm. but then it fell through. And then we're sitting there and we're like, well, why don't we just do this? It kind of makes sense. Um, but I remember my wife was like, she's like, well, how do you know that this is a good idea? Like, is I, cause there was only three guys part of the company really. And, uh, they were, you know, hadn't really done any revenue. Um, we weren't even really buying their technology <laughs> and, and it's just like, I don't know. I'm like, my gut just feels like this is the right move. And I, I know it's not the best way to say it, but sometimes, uh, it was almost like betting on the jockeys and not the horse. It was just, um, 
I, I think the, 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 the founders, the CEO and CTO over there, another gentleman, like they saw the vision and we were going on the same path. And it was like, we're going to be, it was like a one plus one equals three. And then you're sitting there trying to negotiate, like, you know, we already raised $3 million. They had raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, now we're going to merge who gets what valuation. And you have that type of discussion going back and forth. And those are tricky situations where it's like, these are your partners, but you're also trying to tell the other person why you're worth more than them. And, um, and luckily we got through those negotiations pretty well. Um, but it was just, it was, you know, when you're pre-revenue, it's almost like a leap of faith, you know? And, uh, and it was like, all right, I trust you guys. They trusted us. We went through a lot of, uh, um, tough stuff together through that potential acquisition. So I think I got to see what they were made of. And it's like, I can trust these guys to go to battle with, you know? And, uh, and then also I, I saw the other models that were out in the marketplace and I, I, I saw that there was an opportunity there to position ourselves to be the only one that can actually handle an end-to-end transaction through in the system. And the key to that was adding the FinTech component. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I think in the long term it, it's going to help our positioning. I think it makes our, it adds more value to our product. And, um, yeah, I think it's the, the best, uh, I think it was a good decision. What, how messy was the process of trying to negotiate valuations? It honestly took two. Con- yeah, no, it, it 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 honestly took two conversations. Uh, that, oh, yeah, wow. so I had I, I had gone through this process before with our previous platform with Zero Hero, and and we had merged two companies together, and that process took a long time. And at the end, we ended up doing fifty fifty, but there was just a lot of back and forth, and like. You know, I mean, we have shareholders too that invest in our company. I have to protect their assets and their investors. So I, you know, I do have to go to battle for them for their valuation. At the same time, it's a, it's a long-term play and these are going to be my partners, you know? And so you have to balance all of those. And, um, you know, at the end, I mean, our, I remember our, our attorney was like, God, I think you probably could have gotten a little bit more out of that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I, we probably could have gotten $2 million more valuation if we would have spent two more weeks pounding it down. But um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we have a really good working relationship and, and, and we're, we're building a great team and I trust these guys. And I think that's the most important thing. So, um, yeah, sometimes you got to make decisions like that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. There's probably other people listening to this that are mm-hmm. like, you got to be tougher and you got to try to get that last $2 million evaluation out of that. But, um, yeah, I, for the long term, we're built well. I mean, One of the philosophies I think about in terms of these sorts of like scenarios where you have to, I guess, you have to like uh, at some level like butt heads and maybe even like agree to disagree on some of the minor details. But I think yeah. I, I share your philosophy about how um, I think the trust and the rapport that you build by not pounding down for the extra few million in valuation is what really builds the trust for the long term. Maybe yeah. not in terms of like eighteen months, but I think in the grand scheme of life, that those trust relationships are priceless because at the end mm-hmm. of the day, your most valuable asset is your relationships. It's not so much the valuation at any given like a specific point in time yeah no it's it's true and it's it's amazing uh the amount of adversity that that you have to go through through these situations as founders and mm-hmm. we actually have seven founders now because of the merger of the two companies but um even going through our last acquisition with Ticketmaster and all the things that we had to go through um man like you got to be really careful when you're building out your team to start because you have to have people there that you trust and have your back. Mm-hmm. And if you do not, it gets real ugly really quick. 
And um, I've, I've had, we had some friends staying over a couple of weeks ago and she's trying to figure out our my wife's best friend about if she's going to bring this person on as a business partner. And she has mm-hmm. a couple of red flags, but maybe she'll do it. Maybe she won't. I'm like, I'm like, if there are any red flags, do not do it at all. I'm like, I don't care what other values this person can bring. Like there's going to be some really, really tough times ahead. And if you don't have everybody having your back, uh, everything's going to fall apart. And your life's going to be a living hell. And I'm not even joking about that. So. <laughs> I definitely agree. Yeah. How uh, many of these lessons are lessons that you've learned at Blue Palette versus your previous entrepreneurial journeys? I think it's just a continuing saga. I know it's tough to think. I I, I feel like I mean yeah, everything's a stepping stone. I think that what I'm going through right now, I wouldn't have been able to go through five years ago. Hmm. Um, and Can you elaborate uh, on that? Yeah, I think uh, you know, there's just different. How would you say? It? There's different size stages, I guess, that you get on. Um, there's different types of people, participants, levels of talks. I mean, I know at the end they're all just conversations, but um, there's different. There's higher stakes. There's more people's lives on the line, careers on the line. Um, there's just more I needed to know about how to raise money, how to, um, I don't know. There's just so many learning lessons. And then at every point you're kind of, you, you get to like one little like a uh, plateau and you're just like, you're like, oh, I finally got it figured out. And then just, and you're like, <laughs> I don't know anything. Like, so uh, you're, you're continuously getting humbled, but you know, I, I think entrepreneurs, they just have that sixth, like a, uh, that sickness to them they just keep going and getting beaten and beaten and they like it and uh and then you just kind of keep trying to take those lessons and then it gives you the small levels you just keep getting little bits of confidence to continue to kind of go to the next part and next part but um yeah i mean i i think back to like the first vc meeting i had uh like probably a year and a half ago and and uh yeah, it did not it did not go well and i look back at all the mistakes i made you know and, and they're, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're pretty rude. And, and I was pissed and, uh, and now I get it. And I probably would have been rude to me too. Cause I, I didn't prepare the right way. I, I wasn't positioned the right way as far as what valuation I was asking for or it was in just all the different things. So, um, you just got to take your lumps and then, um, but yeah, you, you'll eventually get to a place where you start feeling more and more comfortable talking to the, talking to the Bings and Bessemers and all those guys out there. So. Outside of your direct experience as an entrepreneur, are there specific resources that you've really benefited from either a blog, a book, audio book, or like some course that you've taken that really, I guess, projected you forward into success? Yeah, I mentioned them earlier. Um, the guys from Applico, um, their program and their book, Modern Monopolies, mm. that's kind of been our North Star um, for us. Um, I think they they do a really good job of painting the picture of of uh, Amazon, the monopolistic companies coming in and, and attacking all these uh, different verticals and an opportunity uh, for people if they are able to create a platform to help those communities. Um, I, I also think, uh, as I mentioned, James Courier, NFX, does a really, really good job. Him and his, his team, he's got a full team over there, uh, writing articles and information about uh, network effects, different types of marketplaces. Um, that's really helpful. And I, I think, uh, yeah, it's just really good... I mean, I'm, I just happen to be in platforms and network effects. There's a lot of different other types of business models and then a lot of different founders out there. 
um, I think what's just been most helpful is just try to identify those three to four people that that you respect and that are really forward thinking and kind of pushing the envelope and then just follow those guys. And then like, and I've, I've reached out to each of them and like, I've been able to, to develop a good relationship with Alex and Nick, uh, yeah. other gentleman, Mark Dancer, who's one of the um, main fellows for national association of wholesalers that really pushes the envelope for B2B marketplaces. And, you know, it doesn't like, I, I've reached out to them just on LinkedIn and be like, here's what I'm building. I really respect what you write. Could I have 30 minutes and I'd love to just share, you know, what we're up to. Like I highly recommend doing that to anybody that's a founder out there because I think they appreciate it too. They're, they they want to know that their information is being used and valued. And, and so I think there's kind of a symbiotic relationship there. And, um, but you can get so much once you start having the one-on-one conversations with them. Like, like I selfishly tell them, I'm like, I just want to stay on the phone for five hours and just suck everything out of your head that's in there. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, I think that's more my recommendation is just try to identify people that are really pushing the boundaries of of different effects that affect your industry and, and try to get as close to them as possible. So I think it's clear that you are a clear beneficiary of these conversations, but what is it that you think they're looking for? So I think, well, I can say that, uh, so NFX, I think they, they also have an investment arm. So they're looking for marketplaces, people that are forward thinkers. And so it's probably just as much, you know, inbound marketing content and trying to collect, you know, uh, minds that are working on those types of projects that they support or hit their thesis. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Appleco has done a really good job of, of building up kind of a um, being seen as uh, professionals and consultants for uh, creating marketplaces. And so they've got Ford and some of these other really huge companies going to them and, and having them consult. So, um yeah, but you know, I, I I'm all about that people going out there and finding ways to create value, as as, as ways bringing people in instead of uh, just the straight traditional outbound marketing campaigns. So, I also noticed that you listed volunteer experience in your LinkedIn. Um, that's something that's relatively uncommon, relatively uncommon also for its duration of time. Can you tell us a bit more of how you're involved with that? Yeah, uh, it just came from some time that I, I was fortunate enough to have down in Africa and uh, had randomly traveled into a township while I was down there and uh, just kind of fell in love with it. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have uh, sometimes when they travel somewhere for the first time or a third world country and, and get to see how absolutely blessed we are on a day-to-day basis. And and you see people that don't have all the great things that we're blessed with here in America. And you just have that sense that you want to try to do something. So, um, you know, so very small effort. So it was just, you know, trying to create a very small foundation to build a playground and get some computers down there and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, but I, I think it, it leans uh, towards what we're building with our new Blue Palette platform. And, you know, I mentioned that we had pivoted for a while to try to help out with the COVID situation. And um, we see we see this being a mission of the main mission of ours actually moving forward is like a lot of the problems in the world you know that I've seen in Africa being down there or uh, some of the other international projects we tried to help out with is that it's not a supply uh, problem it's a distribution problem and and the more that we have technologies where we're able to integrate with payments logistics be able to verify who the actual beneficiaries are of either goods or services, um, the more we're going to be able to help out in these situations. And so, you know, we, we tried our best with COVID. We did some help, you know, but our platform just wasn't quite ready yet to really make a significant change. 
Um, but we feel like the lessons that we learned um, uh, trying to help out with COVID and the new technologies that we built in to the system, our, our main mission, and you know, I, people will be like, oh, it sounds cheesy, but it, it, it is, it's to end world hunger. And so we're like, until we've ended world hunger, our project's not done being built. So, you know, we feel like we have this opportunity where we're starting with chemical distribution, which is 96% of all goods come from chemicals and raw materials. And so that gets us one degree separation to all the producers and it gives us one degree separation to all the manufacturers. So we're seeing like the, the, the locust situation in um, East, Northeastern Africa. Um, we were trying to assist with that for a while. Like there's, there's all these times where raw materials are needed immediately for, for these um, horrible uh, tragedies that happen around the world, but there's no way for people to get the resources fast enough, but they're sitting in someone's warehouse. So like I said, it's not an issue of supply. It's, it's a matter of being able to connect these people. And so we have the technology there. It's just everybody continuing to find ways to put them all together. And so, you know, even everybody that, that we have, that we talk to either from a VC standpoint or an investment standpoint, um, you know, I tell them straight up, I'm like, okay, yes, we are a chemical platform right now and we're a market network and so forth. But if you invest in us, or if you wanted to acquire us or whatever it is, you need to understand what our long-term vision is. And this isn't just a platform to make revenue or be a, uh, a unicorn or whatever it is. It's like, we are really trying to make change in the world. And we believe that we're going to be able to do something truly great um, for society. And for a lot of these countries that just don't have instantaneous access to supplies, even in the United States, when it's ridiculous, when, you know, you get a report that there's a hurricane coming or, or, uh, um, and, it's like, and then it takes two weeks for all of a sudden supplies to come down from the Midwest down to Florida, Panhandle. And it's like, why aren't we building in uh, technologies where all of a sudden if there's a category four or five coming off the coast, we can notify people within our supply chain. It's like, oh, you have um, water sanitization uh, chemicals. You have, you know, hydrogen peroxide. We're going to need all of this and get these on trucks immediately. Or our system allows them to, when we were doing the COVID situation, we had uploaded like a list of 6,500 different nonprofits. And so they could go on and broadcast directly to the nonprofits. Like that's what we want to continue to build mm -hmm. on. So, um, we, and we were talking about core values too. We make sure that that's part of the core values of anybody that joins our team. They understand that that's our mission, long-term mission as well. So, um, I, it feels good. It helps you feel good about what you're building on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it encourages a lot of people when they wake up in the morning and they're working with us, they're like, okay, we're not just trying to build the next software platform that's going to maybe go public or be worth a lot of money that people actually care about or building. And they're like, I'm like, I want this to be like your legacy project. I want you to look back at this and be like, man, I was part of Blue Palette and we started this and we were part of the first 20, or original 20. And then and now all of a sudden, now we're, we're sending all these necessary goods and raw materials to West Africa or or whatever it is that that's assisting at that time and place. So, um, yeah. It's really cool to hear. I um, there was a time when I was talking to one micro or my co-founder, and we were wondering whether we should even structure our business as a for-profit company versus a non-profit company, just because yeah. we feel like I share a lot of the same ethos of trying to uh, live for impact in the world, especially in the international space. Right. Um, I, I'm I'm Vietnamese American. My parents were farmers at some point in their life, and uh, I visited rural Vietnam. I've visited I've visited like rural Kyrgyzstan and other parts of that part of the world yeah and it's just incredible how different life is over here compared to um i guess 
anywhere else. I, I really can't justify it. Like, I think from an ethical standpoint, I know there's people who are out there who make enough money to comfortably afford private jets and like massive mansions with like, I don't know, 30,000 square footage. I just personally couldn't like justify it myself personally, knowing that there's someone out there in the world right. for whom just a few dollars of food goes such a long way comparison to my lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it does feel like there is a small sense of change happening. Um, I don't know how fast it's going to happen, but there is kind of a social conscience slowly starting to eke into to, um, businesses and, and, and mm-hmm. founder groups. And, you know, how fast that takes to really take off, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I've continued, I would, you know, you, you were talking about, do I need to be nonprofit or profit? To, you know, I think there's people can be for profit, but make sure that philanthropy or right. giving back to society is, is, uh, is a part of your business model. And there's so many intrinsic benefits from doing that, either from employee buy-in, from community buy-in. Um, and also it can be profitable as well. And there's nothing wrong with that for some companies as well. Like mm-hmm. you can have a profit center and then also make sure that you branch off and give the rest of the services for free because all your, all your costs are being covered by the other part. Like mm-hmm. there's so many different, there's so much more we can be doing right now. And so, you know, any founders that are listening to this or uh, any leadership groups are just, you know, let's, let's keep pushing each other. Um, to find better solutions, to be able to utilize all the resources we have. Because like you said, from your experiences, what you've seen in Vietnam, what I've seen in Africa, it's like it doesn't take that much to make a massive difference. But it's hard to see that if you've never been in front of it before. And, um, and we get we get still stuck with our heads down and, and looking at the quarterly reports or KPIs or whatever. And it's like we just need to start looking a little bit bigger and wider here. So. One of the reasons I decided to leave Silicon Valley was because of my fear of getting sucked into the echo chamber where everyone's constantly focused about, <laughs> I don't know, like the, a very comfortable lifestyle. And the, right. uh, the, that cost goes up higher and higher year over year. Yeah. Um, last time I checked a house in like a, a nice house, a nice part of town of Palo Alto, at least $3 million. And for a lot of people, that's, uh, enough to like retire for multiple generations. Yeah, and, uh, it's it's kind of interesting. That's just the baseline price for a standard house, not even like a mansion, just like a typical house. No, it's it's amazing. I was visiting a buddy down uh, in Mountain View, and uh, coming home, I, I like went into a Seven Eleven and just randomly grabbed one of the real estate magazines as I was out while walking out, and I started looking at it. And uh, yeah, same thing, like two bedroom Rambler for two million dollars. <laughs> and there's traffic, and it's I know it's it's nuts. So hence why I'm living up in the country now. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I hear you. There's definitely a lot of wealth down there and, uh, but hopefully it can be used to good for good. Definitely. Well, I'm very grateful for this conversation. I've learned a lot from you and I think it's cool to see people out there who are also passionate about trying to drive an impact in the world beyond just the financial component and team component. Um, I also want to be respectful of your time. So I just like to end all of my calls the same way. What's the best way for a viewer to get in touch with you? That's something they like to do. Yeah, you can email me directly. Um, I, I love having conversations with different founders or anybody asking questions. Um, so um, my email address, if you want to post it, uh, or it's just sbarrows at bluepallet.io. Um, please reach out if there's any questions or anything that I can fill in. I, I'll be honest, I've got more stories of things not to do than things to do if you're looking for guidance. So I can tell Maybe you. We'll have a second episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're going to do another show on that. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, please reach out. I love, uh, kind of continuing to build a community. 
of other founders, and, and, I, and I love having the conversations. It's a two-way, two-way street as far as receiving value from those. Sounds good. Well, thanks for your time, Scott. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it.